So I'm checking the, 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 a sentence or a word that is the same forwards and backwards is a palindrome. Is that how you say it? That's what today is. I didn't know that until somebody told me after first service. It's 02022020, same forwards and backwards. And that won't happen again for another 100 years. And I expect to see you here then. So I'm going to keep doing this, uh, that is um, talking about the Reclaiming Jesus study group that meets here on Tuesday nights. Um, you don't have to have attended the previous sessions to show up, and we're going through um, the Reclaiming Jesus document, and Diane Chinky, who is sitting back there, hold her hand up, is... Uh, leading that group. I'm really grateful for, for Diane to do that. And I promised David Fawcett that I would not mention again that he brings cookies to that uh, event. So I didn't mention it. Yeah. So how are you doing? Everybody's really excited about the Super Bowl. I don't even know who's playing. We don't, we don't care. So if you are a pajama person or a wine and cheese person and you're live streaming this, I get a lot. It's just amazing. People all over are able to join us. And thank you for all the people here, Olivia and William and Richard and Tim and everybody who makes it possible for that to happen. I'm really grateful and for you. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So I'm fairly certain that each one of you has heard, or at some time in your life, used, probably quite a few times, but I'm sure you've heard the phrase, well, the truth is. You've probably heard that John's no longer working for the bank. The rumor is he got fired for embezzlement, but the truth is. Or could it be the other way around? You may have heard that John got promoted to the head, head of a hedge fund on Wall Street. Well, the truth is he actually got fired for embezzlement. So unless you have a mental condition that makes you a narcissist, a sociopath, or a senator, <laughs> you're likely to believe that you tell the truth all the time. Unless, and are, and are happy to hear the truth, unless, of course, that truth goes contrary to our pre preciously held political or religious convictions. I, and the fact is, I can lie at the drop of a hat. And I am assuming that that's possible for you, too. Now, with my uh, lying, it um, comes with ordination. It's called ministerially speaking. How many people did you have in church on Sunday? Well, between two and 3,000. <laughs> it's the truth, between two. <laughs> so you're invited to eat out, and your host or hostess serves a meal that is just absolutely awful. But our concern for the feelings of that person are such that we, oh, boy, that was good. We call it being polite. And, and being gracious. We don't call it lying. The preacher said one Sunday at the end of his sermon, 
Uh, next week, I want to give you a very special sermon, but I need your help to do so. The sermon I'm going to preach will be about the 17th chapter of the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, and I really want you to read that. Would each of you agree to do that before next week? And every hand the congregation went up because they love their pastor. And the next Sunday when it came time for the sermon, the preacher stepped up into the pulpit and said, how many of you read the 17th chapter of Mark in preparation for today's sermon? Not as many hands went up, but a lot did. They loved their pastor. And then he said, today's sermon is about honesty. There is no 17th chapter in the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> the story does not say whether that was his last Sunday or not. And the prisoners lied or didn't tell the truth for a variety of reasons. His uh, even playing a trick on them, perhaps, was good motivation. The truth is, so this talk is about truth. It's about facts. It's about assessments. It's about opinions. And it's about assertions that are treated as facts. And um, the, the talk is probably going to be more provo provocative than it's going to be definitive. A lot of you leave every Sunday thinking, well, that was provoking, but um, <laughs> so be it. So as you, as you likely know, I am using the document Reclaiming Jesus and the Charter for Compassion as platforms for launching these talks. And I had decided some weeks ago that today I was going to talk on this one, not knowing that this is also what Diane was going to do in the Tuesday night group. So I'm going to read you two paragraphs from the Reclaiming Jesus document. We believe that truth is morally central to our personal and public lives. Truth-telling is central to the prophetic biblical tradition whose vocation includes speaking the word of God into their societies and speaking the truth to power. A commitment to speaking the truth, the ninth commandment of the Decalogue, you shall not bear false witness, is foundational to shared truth in society. Falsehood can enslave us, but Jesus promises you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The search and respect for truth is crucial to anyone who follows Christ. There are many phrases in this paragraph that are important and that we will likely return to in the weeks ahead. The document goes on. Therefore, we reject the practice and pattern of lying that is invading our political and civil life. Politicians like the rest of us are human, fallible, sinful, and mortal. But when Public lying becomes so persistent that it deliberately tries to change facts for ideological, political, or personal gain. The public accountability to truth is undermined. The regular purveying of falsehoods and consistent lying by the nation's highest leaders can change the moral expectations within a culture, the accountability for a civil society, and even the behavior of families and children. The, normalizing lying, the normalization of lying presents a profound moral danger to the fabric of society. In the face of lies that bring darkness, Jesus is our truth and light. And again, a ton of phrases that will be elaborated on in the, the weeks ahead. 
this document, Reclaiming Jesus, was not greeted warmly by evangelical Christians. And I'm not surprised by that. Some comments were made in the small group discussion I was part of Tuesday night that motivated me to look that up. Um, and I'm putting a link in the summary that will go out about this so that you can follow up on that yourself. Um, but I, I would like to give you just a little bit of history of, of my relationship with this document. The Reclaiming Jesus document came out in the spring of 2018. And um, it came out in, in the Lenten season of that year, in 2018. And I had not heard of it, but we were visiting with friends in California the man in that marriage is a um, psychologist and Methodist minister also, and he asked us if we had seen this document and gave me a copy of it to read and said that they were using it as a study guide in their church, which is a UCC church. And um, I looked at the names of the people who signed the document first. I was very impressed with the list of people who, who signed it. And again, you can go on the Ordinary Life website and look this up for yourself. Richard Rohr signed it. Will Willimon signed it. A number of people that um, I have respect for signed it. There's a good mix of male and female. There's a good mix of uh, nationalities and ethnicities. And it, it seemed to practice what it preached. And so that gained my respect. However... There's that delightful theological word again, you know, however. I decided not to teach from this document at that time, and for a variety of reasons. Uh, for one thing, it's got a lot of Jesus talk in it, and Jesus talk turns me off. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love what I come to understand about Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. But... I want to tread softly when talking about Jesus because I do not want to be put in that evangelical camp. You know what I mean about that? Although I do consider myself evangelical. I'm being an evangelist right now. I think I have good news to share, and we have good news to share, which is what the word evangelist means. But I don't want the assumptions made about me that people make on either side of the issue when they hear either the word Christian or the word evangelical. So what happened that we're talking about it now? Well, several things happened. Um, one was the encounter I had with Michael Morewood. By the way, he will be coming back here in a few, not too many weeks from now. And we have his new book, which we, I think, will start selling here in two weeks, his new book on prayer, Reimagining uh, Prayer. And, and Morewood's call for us to re-examine everything in the light of evolutionary cosmology uh, really energized me as nothing else has since I first encountered Ilya Delio. And so I began reading in this area, and Holly and I began talking about it a lot. She's the real expert in this um, area. And then last spring, we attended a conference where we heard Jackie Lewis speak, and she is also going to be coming here uh, this year. And, and my own personal work that has led me to see and teach about the critical importance of our embracing the implications of the end of cosmological um, dualism. 
you know, we have, to, we, we have to get rid of that. We have to learn to see the planet and each other as a whole, to live with integrity, and, and to reclaim the religion of rightness, as, as I call it. One of the major things motivating me is my desire to speak insofar as possible to the incredible distortion of the teaching of Jesus that is being done in the name of Jesus. When I, when I read the teachings of the prophets of Israel and Jesus is in that tradition, I read the teachings of John the Baptist, the collection of teachings in the Gospel of Thomas, I cannot but believe that these spiritual teachers and what they taught would not go up in confrontation and contestation against the ruling powers of our time. So in a conversation that Holly and I had getting ready for the last time we talked and the next time, which will be next week, we talked about how our culture's understanding of Christianity comes from taking issues like evolution, what we're learning about cosmological unity, what we're learning about inclusive connectivity, and trying to fit them in the Christian story, and if they don't fit, they're dismissed. Rather than um, seeing our task is, is to fit the teachings of Jesus into the cosmological story. And so that gives us a whole new way of thinking about compassion and justice and integrity and living with each other in relationship. And I, I don't know what else you've heard or think about all this, but the truth is, it's a title, <laughs> the truth is, there's very little of Jesus in most evangelical Christianity. There's very little Jesus in most evangelical churches. Just think about it. Listen to it. So according to the Jesus narrative that we find in the Gospel of John, just before Pilate washes his hands of what he's about to do with Jesus, he asks him, what is truth? That is a great question. Because getting an answer to that would be a key to our liberation. Because Jesus himself says in that same narrative, if you will stick with this, living out what I tell you, you are my disciples for sure, then you will experience for yourselves the truth, and the truth will set you free. Or as you most likely are familiar with it, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Actually, I think it should have read, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you angry. <laughs> uh, Flannery O'Connor says, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you odd. <laughs> but what that assumes is that there is something called truth. And that there are choices we can make about this thing called truth. And that the choices we make will determine whether we are free or in bondage. Bondage is the opposite of freedom. So what's truth? Depends on where you stand, doesn't it? Here's a drawing of two people arguing about what they see. One sees a six. One sees a nine. Who's correct? The truth is that they're both correct. Or how about this old adage? Some see the glass as half full. Some see the glass as half empty. I personally see the glass as refillable. 
<laughs> or how about this? I went to the physics lab in Hogwarts, and I got something to show you, something that you don't see every day. Because when we went to physics at Hogwarts, we were taught that in the muggle world, you muggles believe <clears throat> that solid cannot pass through solid. But the truth is, If you had gone to Hogwarts, you could do that too. Or how about this? Ralph and Edna were both patients in a mental hospital. And one day while they were walking past the hospital swimming pool, Ralph suddenly jumped into the deep end and immediately sank to the bottom of the pool and stayed there. And Edna promptly jumped in to save him. She swam to the bottom of the pool and pulled him out. When the head nurse became aware of Edna's heroic acts, she now considered her to be mentally stable and ordered her to be discharged from the hospital. And she said to her, Edna, I have good news and bad news. The good news is you're being discharged since you were able to rationally respond to a crisis by jumping in and saving the life of the person you love. The bad news is... Ralph hung himself in the bathroom with his bathrobe belt right after you saved him. I'm so sorry to tell you that he's dead. Oh, no, you're wrong, said Edna. He didn't hang himself. The truth is, I put him there to dry. <laughs> How soon can I go home? Stephen Hawking said, the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance, it's the illusion of knowledge. Um, <clears throat> part of, at part of my training years ago, we, and I don't know if this is still being done or not, it may be that HIPAA rules have made this an impossible thing to do, but part of the training in um, clinical psychotherapy and clinical psychology is, um, was this. Um, the trainees would sit in a somewhat darkened room behind a one-way glass mirror. And in the clinical room, there would be a senior therapist, a psychiatrist, or psychologist doing a therapy session with a patient or a client, and we would watch what would happen. Okay? There was a situation where one day a psychiatrist was interviewing a man who was delusional. The man thought he was Jesus Christ. The psychiatrist was telling him that couldn't be the case because he was Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, you may question the wisdom of that intervention, but if you had walked into the viewing room and knew nothing of the backstory, you wouldn't know who to believe. I love Jerry Seinfeld's routine where he talks about people who walk their dogs. He said, if you were an alien and you came upon this scene that I'm about to describe, you would wonder. Because you would see one living being 
leading another living being. The one in the front seems happy and carefree. And the one behind is carrying a bag of the poop of the one in front. Who would you think was in charge? Sometimes the truth is hard to find. I, I wanted to include a piece today on what is the lowest rank that somebody can have in the military. But everywhere I call, they said it's private. <laughs> Just trying to get you to think. I like the work of Rene Magritte. Dominique uh, de Manil is a huge patron of Magritte's, and the Manil collection has many of his works and a permanent display of one of them, of, the, of many of them, and one that I especially like is this one, which is called The Empire of Light. I have a print of this hanging in my office because I think it's metaphorical of what we try to do in spiritual growth. The top scene is a daylight summer scene, daylight, and the Bottom scene is rainy nighttime. A lot of people come in and look at this and they think it's a photograph, but it's a painting. What's true about it? I stood in front of this painting multitudes of times. The painting is called This Is Not a Pipe. And I stood there wondering and wondering and wondering what in the world is the significance of this until it dawned on me it's not a pipe. It's a painting of a pipe. That's the truth. And I, th this has nothing to do with my talk. This is just another one of my favorite Magritte things. I used to show this in the this, this slide. This is called Clairvoyance, where the painter's looking at the egg and seeing the bird. That's beautiful. I once read that the profession that has the most job satisfaction was that of being a symphony conductor. The conductor gets applauded the moment he or she walks on the stage. They haven't done anything yet. They work with their back to the audience. All they need in their toolbox is a tiny stick called a baton. The job with the highest degree of job dissatisfaction is that of being a baseball umpire. They dress in black. Nobody ever cheers them. The things they most likely hear from the audience is kill the ump. Are you blind? A sports reporter once interviewed some uh, baseball umpires about the nature of their work and asked them this question. When you're standing behind the plate doing what you do, how is it that you think about your job? The first umpire said, I call the balls balls and I call the strikes strikes. That's the truth. The second umpire said, I call them like I see them. That's the truth. The third umpire said, they ain't nothing till I call them. <laughs> and that's the truth, too. Long ago, Plato said, what is honored in a country will be cultivated there. And the truth is that we live in a culture that honors the truth less and less. Look at the current political scene. Or look at our current sports scene. In the Newsweek journal, in the journal that I take called The Week, there was an article two weeks ago 
uh, in the January 31st issue with the headlines, Houston Astros, do cheaters sometimes prosper? You know, for a long time uh, in the 20, in 2010s and on, when uh, the Astros were playing according to the uh, statistical rule that you see in the movie Moneyball, um, the Astros were seen as the defining team of baseball. That's still true, but in the worst way possible. Because during the Astros' 2017 championship season, they ran an elaborate sign-stealing scheme using a video camera at Minute Maid Park to read the opposing team's signs from the catcher to the pitcher. And they decoded those signs on a monitor near the dugout and then signaled by banging on a garbage can what the pitch the batter could expect the pitcher to be throwing. And it was highly effective. Because in the 2017 playoffs, the star, Jose Atuvi, batted 427 at home and only 173 on the road. One sports writer said the league's toothless response made this scandal even more damaging. The Astros were fined a paltry $5 million and fired their manager and general manager after Major League Baseball suspended them, but not a single player's gotten the heave-ho or lost a red cent, and their diamond-encrusted rings will still have 2017 World Series champions etched on them forever and ever. Let's face it, the bad guys won. Now, others pointed out that the truth is it's not so bad stealing signs, and it's been baked into baseball history for a century. Another sports writer said, players will always try to gain an advantage, especially now that success can bring tens of millions of dollars. A periodic cheating scandal, this is a quote, a periodic cheating scandal is what makes baseball so colorful and absolutely uh, irresistible. Now, most people, I think, want to believe that they are watching fair contest, either on the ball field or in a court of law, and I think it would be interesting to ask the fans of the teams the Astros beat in the playoffs and World Series if they think the Astros' cheating was colorful and entertaining. You remember, we live in a culture where after the collapse of Wall Street in 2008, the fraudsters didn't go to jail. The banks that separated millions of Americans from their homes, their jobs, their life savings, those banks got bailed out. Those defrauded didn't. As the article states, in America, a grudging respect for winning at any cost is woven into our spiritual DNA. We are told as children that cheaters never win, but we soon find out life isn't always fair. Cheaters do win. Sometimes they win bigly. The truth is, now I don't know about you, and this is no way to mean to be partisan, but I never in my life heard the phrase alternative facts until January 2017 when the claim was made that the size of the crowd at Trump's inauguration was the largest in history. Now, that claim got immediately challenged in papers all over the world. You can go check this out yourself. 
and, and, and uh, by, by photographs that were posted on front pages of papers in, in England and, and not just here, but all over. And, and uh, on January the 21st, after these photographs were posted, Press Secretary Son Spicer berated reporters and said, quote, that was the largest audience ever to witness an inauguration, period, both in person and around the globe. Now, to be fair, Spicer has since regretted making those remarks, but before he had that opportunity, the controversy did not die down. The, the press continued to go after that. And Kellyanne Conway said about Spicer's remarks, we are presenting alternative facts. That was in an interview with Chuck Todd. You can go online and look all this stuff up. And uh, Chuck Todd said, alternative facts aren't facts, they're falsehood. Conway replied, well, I'll answer it this way. Think about what you just said to your viewers. That's why we feel compelled to go out and clear the air and put alternative facts out there. And you come to your own determination about what that means. What's the truth? It did give rise, this, to a lot of comic responses. This was the golden book of alternate facts that was printed. <laughs> Oh, just, just love this. These are pancakes. This is a butterfly. That's a table. Great cartoon that came out. Alternative facts on. And I personally look at what's going on under the guise of Christianity and, and what's going on under the ideals held forth about this country and wonder why what has happened has happened. In both the evangelical tradition that I grew up in, which nobody would have recognized what's happening today going on. Nobody would have predicted what is going on today. Um, and, and the same thing, I think, can be said in, in the political realm. A few years ago, things that would have been absolute deal-breakers aren't deal-breakers anymore. We have gotten, as a country, into an emotional and relational intelligence regression where, clearly the, where the clearly unacceptable has been more acceptable. Peter Singer, one of the leading uh, learning theory gurus in America, says that there are six ingredients needed for real and lasting change to occur in an organization. These things are trust, vision, skills, resources, payoff, and an action plan. And according to him, if any one of these pieces is missing, the outcome may temporarily look good, but the chance for a long-time positive outcome doesn't exist. Now, we can argue among ourselves about what might be missing in our current government or in our various religious denominations, but clearly anxiety, anger, and confusion abound and are some of the driving energies behind what's happening. Peter Singh is the, the one from whom uh, years ago, and I'm sure you've heard this, I first heard the parable of the boiled frog. He used the parable to illustrate maladaptation to gradually building threats. Uh, and you've heard it. If you place a, pot, a frog in a pot of boiling water, it will immediately try to scramble out. But if you place the frog in a room temperature water, he will stay put. 
And if you just gradually raise the temperature, something very interesting happens. As the temperature rises slowly, the frog will do nothing. He may even show signs of enjoying himself. But eventually, he will become helpless and unable to climb out. And though there is nothing restraining him, the frog will sit there and boil to death. Years ago, <clears throat> when uh, I was at another place of education, I saw this prayer by uh, Willard Sperry, who was the dean of the Harvard Divinity School, in where Sperry said, Give to us, O Lord, a right discernment between that which comes first in our faith and that which follows after. And when we would make much of that which cannot matter much to thee, recall us to the heart of our Christian profession, Jesus Christ our Lord. We have to reclaim Jesus. Because we have made much as a culture of that which matters little. We've fallen for the cultural lie that the religion of consumerism puts forth what it does so that we can prosper. We've done this even to the point that we call our religion the prosperity gospel. We emphasize things that God could care less about. Does sacred mystery really give a hoot? What religion we use to connect to her and by which to spread the values of love, kindness, compassion, mercy, justice? to practice distributive justice to those that Jesus called the least of these. I typed in my search engine on my computer, how much is a ticket to the Super Bowl? Which is this afternoon, right? The answer I got was Super Bowl tickets cost on average $8,006. In 2019, 12.5 million children in this country suffered from what's called food insecurity. That's a fancy word for hunger. There's something wrong in that picture. Blessed are the poor. But our culture invites us to live on the surface, to ignore what's truly going on, to lose vision of living for seven generations out, to be isolated from each other to forget who we are, and to have an absolute confusion about truth. Christian religion in the United States, white male folk religion, has focused continually on re-icing a cake that's collapsed instead of rebuilding the cake from the bottom layers up. This version of the teachings of Jesus focuses on things he never did, who's in, who's out, refining doctrines, focusing on shallow morality. These things never work, never work. Wise and useful religion is one that focuses on compassion and justice, one that pays attention to everybody. That's the truth. The truth is that if something is true, it's true all the time and everywhere. If we hold it that the particular religion or political position we practice is the only one, we've created a stingy, limited, and withholding religion and politics. Evolutionary cosmology is offering us this wonderful opportunity to reimagine our spiritual understandings. The truth is 
that we must be willing to become students of the truth and develop a willingness to follow it. Now, I want to tell you a story. And I want to be clear. I'm not claiming that what you're about to hear actually happened. But it is the truth. While I was working on this talk, I was overcome by a spell a vision, a seizure, call it what you will. But I found myself standing on a street facing a shop that had above it the truth shop. And I was intrigued by that. I, I, well, I've never seen that before. So I went in. This very congenial, very kind man came up to me and said, may I help you? And I told him, Wow, I'm intrigued by your sign. I just wanted to come in and look around, uh, see what's inside. And he said, oh, we have the truth here. Would you like to look around? What do you mean you have the truth here? Well, we sell the truth here. I I don't understand. Well, here, I'll, I'll show you around. So come over here. Here we have the truth. This is very basic truth. This is truth based on factual evidence that we have at the moment. Now, of course, as theoretical physics and theoretical math change, this truth is going to change. But this is what we know the truth to be right now. Basic, factual truth. And what I saw were many sizes and shapes and colors. It was just beautiful, the truth. It was beautiful. And I found that basic truth, depending on, of course, how much I wanted, was something that would probably fit in my budget. I could afford the truth. And then he said, now that's the truth. Over here we have the whole truth. (laughs) And now that whole truth is shaped by perspective and position, experience, and wisdom. The truth is shaped by knowledge and information. This is shaped by wisdom and understanding. The whole truth is much more refined. It's much more difficult to acquire. And he was right. But I got to tell you, the whole truth was enviable because it was so beautiful. It was also very expensive. If I got it, I was going to have to either borrow money or go into savings. I'm reluctant to do that. And then in the back, I noticed this velvet curtain, and I said, what's back there? And he said, well, as I said, out here we have on display the truth, the whole truth, and back there we have nothing but the truth. (laughs) Can I see it? He said, of course. Put on these protective goggles, and I'll take you back there. So he ushered me into a room where I saw something I cannot put into words. It's like if you multiplied the first time you saw the Grand Canyon in person by a factor of 100, that's what it looked like. It was just breathtaking. It was beautiful. It was awesome. Uh, There was music. There were colors. I, I, I wept and laughed at the same time. It was just absolutely incredible. And, and I said, how much is this? And he said, well... Um, actually, you pay for nothing but the truth in two payments. If you want it right now, 
The first payment is your security. And then after a while, your life. That's the whole truth. I didn't buy it, but I wanted to come back and tell you about it. I thought maybe if we chipped in together. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you.